When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Are Democrats following the science or the polling? The lead starts right now. More and more blue states lining up to ditch the mask mandates, but the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is insisting, hey, this is all way too soon. A storm cloud in the Sunshine State. President Biden versus Florida Governor Ron DeSantis after the White House attacks the proposed new Florida school law that critics call the Don't Say Gay Bill. And feeling the heat on and off the field, Roger Goodell getting tough questions this afternoon about institutional racism and hiring head coaches. We're going to talk to a former NFL player who was head of the Players Union. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with the health lead today and the growing gap between states and the Biden administration looking more and more like a deep COVID canyon. Today, New, York, New York's governor announced that starting tomorrow, masks and proof of vaccination will no longer be required for indoor businesses in the Empire State. That adds to a growing list of Democratic-led states that have already announced plans to roll back mask mandates in the coming days and weeks. At the same time that the New York governor was speaking, We heard the Biden administration stress the complete opposite message, that it is not the time to lift those restrictions. We are working on that guidance. We are working on, you know, following the trends for the moment. Um, What I will say, though, is, you know, our hospitalizations are still high. Our death rates are still high. So as we work towards that and as we um, are encouraged by the current trends, we are not there yet. COVID cases, new cases, have dropped 46% since last week. Hospitalizations have dipped below 100,000 for the first time in a month. And, thankfully, the number of COVID deaths is also trending down since last week. CNN's Alexander Field starts us off today. Facing a confused public, the CDC trying to be clear on masking. At this time, we continue to recommend masking in areas of high and substantial transmission. Um, That's much of the country right now. But more governors across the country are taking matters into their own hands. Today, Massachusetts, Illinois and Rhode Island announcing plans to begin rolling back mask mandates. New York will keep masks in schools for now while relaxing other restrictions. At this time, we say that is the right decision to lift this mandate for indoor businesses and let counties, cities, and businesses to make their own decisions on what they want to do with respect to masks or the vaccination requirement. Under pressure from governors to issue new guidance, the CDC says it will update recommendations, but not yet. We've always said that these decisions are going to have to be made at the local level. Many of these decisions are using a phased approach. Not all of these decisions are being made to stop things tomorrow. They have to be done at the local level, but I'm really encouraged. The cases are continuing to drop dramatically. Hospitalizations are continuing to drop dramatically as um, people are making these decisions and as we are working on our guidance. 
Dr. Fauci telling the Financial Times that as we get out of the full-blown pandemic, these decisions will increasingly be made on a local level, and that there will also be more people making their own decisions on how they want to deal with the virus, which is, as we start to see the other side of the Omicron surge, the relief so many have waited for. I hope the school makes it a choice. If you're more comfortable with your child wearing a mask, then they can wear a mask. But for those of us that want a choice and to unmask our kids, I want them to allow us to unmask our kids. But public health experts are pleading for patients while warning parts of the country aren't there yet. Do parents in an ideal setting want their kids in masks? No parent would want a mask if it's not needed. Um, I think what our goal should be is to get to a place where we can pull back on these uh, types of restrictions as often, as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. And Jake, on the long-awaited vaccines for children under five, the federal government is now preparing to roll out an initial 10 million doses of the vaccines for little ones just as soon as the FDA authorizes it. Vaccine advisors are getting together to discuss that next week. Jake? Alexander Field, thanks so much. Let's bring in William Hazeltine. He's a former Harvard Medical School professor known for his work in researching deadly viruses. Mr. Hasseltine, good to see you. Only today did the number of people in the hospital with COVID drop below 100,000. The CDC director said this trend's encouraging, but she repeatedly said hospitalizations remain too high for states to lift the mask mandates. Do you agree? Uh, I agree if you take the United States as a whole. Uh, We have more cases than we had at the peak last December. We have about 340,000 cases that's reaching sort of down to the peak. So we have a lot of uh, COVID still in the country, an awful lot. Secondly, the number of people who died of COVID yesterday was about 3,300. Uh, 3, That's a lot of people. Uh, and again, it's on, on par with the worst we've ever had. Now, I look at this as coming out of a tornado and going into a hurricane on average. But an average isn't your local area. So what people are going to decide to do, you know, when people say it goes down 40 percent, 40 percent down from a tornado is not good. So that's what the CDC is looking at. But other people look at what's happening in their local area. And I urge everybody to go online. to just go online and look up COVID by your zip code. It's right there on Google. You can find it. So that's what I would do if you really want to know how dangerous it is. Do I have another comment to make about mass if I have a minute? Go ahead. Okay, and that is that um, masks are a good thing in general. This is flu season. A mask helps stop flu. This is RSV season, respiratory syncytial virus that hurts very young children and older people. Masks help that. I think that there's all this heat about a mask. We should begin to think about masks as just a regular part of life during the flu and cold season. And when COVID is there, it's even more important to think about it. So I think that's a, something that people should keep in their mind. Other countries do that around the world in the winter mask up. And it's not a big deal for kids. They just do it. It's not a big deal for adults either. Dr. Walensky said the CDC is not there yet when it comes to uh, calls to change the guidance. Uh, do you think the CDC is acting too slowly when it comes to changing guidance? I don't think so. Uh, We see that the CDC only makes recommendations in any event. Uh, We are a country where states and local communities have a great deal of uh, power. It's not a a, a federal mandate that everybody wears masks. It's a strong recommendation. And I think that's a prudent thing to do when we have as much COVID right now today as we had at the peak in December 
and much more than we had when people were worried about it before. So it's all relative. Yes, it's coming down, but it hasn't gone away. Democrat Stacey Abrams is running for governor in Georgia. She came under fire for taking off her mask at a school event in which every child in the picture had a mask on. I want to note something she said in her apology about why she says she took her mask off. Take a listen. I approached the podium with my mask on. I followed the protocols. I told the kids I'm taking my mask off because I'm reading to kids who are listening remotely as well. And we were socially distanced. The kids were socially distanced from me. I told them that's what I was doing. Protocols matter. And protecting our kids is the most important thing. And anything that can be perceived as undermining that is a mistake. And I apologize. But the, the point that I, I think a lot of folks wonder about um, is, and I should note that she was uh, talking to my colleague Aaron Burnett, is Stacey Abrams is making the point about trying to communicate with kids, taking off the masks, which I understand. Um, but it should apply for more than just a concern for when a, a candidate is speaking to a classroom of kids. Uh, I think there are a lot of people very concerned about whether kids need to be masked up, whether kids, uh, their, their speech development and, and other socialization skills are being hurt here. Do you, do you have those concerns? Well, the first thing I would say about the Stacey Abrams uh, situation is a picture is worth a thousand words. In this case, it's not a good picture. Simple as that. The second thing I would say about uh, kids, I have grandkids, and they have no problem with their masks. There may be kids that do have problems with masks. I understand that. But the kids I see and all their kids in class are very happy, seem to be happy, wearing their masks. You know, kids are really adaptable. And I'm not sure that there's really good science behind the claims that the masks are impeding education. What does impede education is not being able to go to school because you stay at home because you've got COVID or somebody in your family has COVID. So I don't think the mask impeding education is really on, is a, is a hard proven fact. And uh, kids are very adaptable. And the ones I've seen seem to adapt pretty well. Other people may have seen other situations. All right, William Hazeltine, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Really appreciate it. President Biden says, no way, speaking out against a controversial proposed law being debated in Florida. And breaking news out of Los Angeles, the NFL commissioner has been peppered with questions about the league's issues with institutional racism. Let's talk about how he responds. That's coming up. In our politics lead, the White House under pressure today to weigh in on the growing list of states that are rolling back their mask mandates today. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that students and teachers should continue to follow CDC guidelines on masks, regardless of state rules. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins at the White House. Caitlin, states are are asking for the White House to take the lead on providing guidance and to update guidance, frankly. Why the reluctance? Yeah, and Jake, so far they haven't gotten that guidance yet from the White House that they say they've been seeking for several weeks now. And instead, you're seeing the CDC stay cautious here. They are maintaining those guidelines, those recommendations that they've had when it comes to masking, not just in indoor settings, but also for children in schools. Even as you were seeing several blue states change their minds, change their mandates, as you saw several of those announcements happening today. And the CDC director told me this is because they believe that the case rates are still too high, the death rates are still too high. And so while they are working behind the scenes on what that new guidance would look like, they're not prepared to issue it yet. And I think the confusion that that causes, Jake, is then it causes people to wonder, who do you listen to, your governor or the CDC, when it comes to what the mask recommendations are going to be for you? And of course, we know the CDC director 
told me earlier that it's a local decision. It's a local uh, guidance decision that they are going to make. Jen Psaki said uh, a little bit different. She said that schools should be listening still to the CDC if you're a parent. President Biden himself, though, Jake, not weighing in today. Fundamentally, uh... President Biden gathering CEOs from the major electric utility companies at the White House today. You're here saying you support this and you're going to try to move if we can get this Build Back Better piece done. On the agenda, clean energy and the climate aspect of his Build Back Better proposal. Your support of clean energy and the clean energy tax policies will really allow us to accelerate that making energy reliable, affordable, and cleaner sooner. But the president is promoting a plan that's currently totally stalled on Capitol Hill. The Build Back Better, as, as it has been presented uh, over, what, the last seven, eight, nine months, mm-hmm. that bill no longer will exist, okay? Even those hoping to revive it, like First Lady Jill Biden, are acknowledging that key provisions, including free community college, will be missing from whatever reemerges. I was disappointed because, like you, these aren't just bills or budgets to me, to you, right? We know what they mean for real people. Okay. Also today, the White House denouncing legislation proposed by Republicans in Florida that would limit discussions about sexual orientation and gender identity in the classroom. It's cruel. It's harmful. It uh, tells uh, youth uh, who are different or whose families are different that uh, there's something wrong with them out of the gate. And I do think that contributes to the shocking levels of uh, suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts uh, among LGBTQ youth. Biden directly calling the bill hateful and offering his support for children who would be affected, tweeting, quote, I have your back and my administration will continue to fight for the protections and safety you deserve. If the bill becomes law, parents would be able to sue if they believe a school is violating any provisions. Critics have dubbed it the don't say gay bill, but advocates are insisting it's about parental rights. And Governor Ron DeSantis is offering his support. We've seen instances of students being told by uh, different folks in school, oh, you know, you know, don't worry, don't pick your gender yet, do all this other stuff. They won't tell the parents about these discussions that are happening. That is entirely inappropriate. And we need, schools need to be teaching kids to read, to write. They need to teach them science, history. Jake, also back here at the White House today, President Biden had his third call with the French president within a week. Of course, that comes after Emmanuel Macron had just traveled to Russia and to Ukraine. They talked about deterrence efforts when it comes to those troops that are on Ukraine's border. But we should note those conversations are happening as the Pentagon says Russia is still adding more forces. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Appreciate it. In our world lead, the White House has now approved a plan for some 2,000 U.S. service members to help Americans evacuate from Ukraine if Russia attacks. They're setting up processing areas inside Poland. Meanwhile, Russian warships are approaching the Black Sea. And as Caitlin noted, in the last 24 hours, Russia has sent another 2,000 combat forces to areas close to Ukraine's border. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now live from Moscow. Sam Kiley is live in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Sam, let's start with you. You're 30 miles from the Russian border. How are Ukrainians where you are feeling about this looming potential conflict? Well, they're very anxious, uh, Jake, but they're not digging in. They're not yet building uh, barricades and uh, tearing up the bridges between here and Moscow, so to speak. 
Uh, what they are doing, though, and have been over the last few days, is insisting on unity on their Ukrainian-ness. And the reason for that is that 65 or 75%, rather, more than three quarters of the population here, speaks Russian as a mother tongue. They might have expected, Putin might have expected a degree of sympathy among the population here, but that, we're not seeing that on the ground. What we have seen is uh, politicians from the far right and the far left coming together uh, we've seen small numbers of civilians going out to learn how to fight and train and use uh, live, live ammunition, both men and women. And here, which is a major industrial base, they are frantically rebuilding uh, tanks, refitting T-64 tanks from the 1960s into sparkling new tanks with uh, new uh, technology to try to take on uh, a Russian invasion if it comes to it. But a great deal of diplomatic effort is going into this and there is a hope here Jake also that the diplomacy may stall long enough for the ground to just get too muddy for Russian armor to come across that border that is so close. Jake? Nick let's talk about that that diplomacy there have been so many diplomatic meetings this week Moscow is going to host more western diplomats in the days to come what does the Kremlin make of all these efforts? Uh, they gave a readout today on what they think happened in Ukraine when Macron met Zelensky there, uh, the, pres the, the two presidents. Uh, they feel that some of it was positive, uh, some of it less positive. They say, look, the fact that uh, the, the French agree that uh, the Minsk talks are the best way forward to kind of bring about some peace and stability in Ukraine with the Russian, uh, pro-Russian separatists in the East and the Ukrainian government. That's positive. Less positive, they say, is that the Ukrainian leadership has done nothing uh, that they should have done per those Minsk agreements. Of course, the, the wider view uh, that in the United States and, and most of NATO allies is it's the Russians who've not done their part. Ukraine's, Ukraine has broadly done most of what was expected from them. Um, the, the Kremlin remains silent on the big issue of what Putin is going to do next. He is sitting and waiting and watching what all these sort of diplomatic moves that are going on. There'll be talks in Berlin tomorrow on those Minsk agreements. He's putting pressure on the Germans and the French to, to get what he wants out of it. So he's waiting and watching right now. And, and Sam, Russia is gearing up for these military exercises in Belarus and the Black Sea. Uh, what is the, the goal of those drills? Well, the official goal is that these are exercises, uh, as the Russians would say, to demonstrate and integrate uh, Russian and their allied forces with Belarus in the face of what they claim to be growing NATO aggression. That's not how NATO sees it. It's not how the Ukrainians see, see it. And the arrival of General Gerasimov, the commander of the Russian armed forces in Belarus, will have reassured nobody. He is the author of the Gerasimov Doctrine, which we've seen played out in attempts to interfere politically in the United States, uh, potentially in the Brexit vote, trying to break up Europe, a hybrid warfare, as it's called. He has specialised the development of that uh, doctrine in Russia. And there is concern here that some kind of uh, false flag operation could be conducted, some kind of nefarious plot or plots to continue to destabilise Ukraine, even if it doesn't get actually invaded, Jake. And Nick, Russia keeps fortifying its positions, but the Kremlin claims that Russia and Belarus are the ones facing unprecedented threats, they say, from NATO. 
Yeah, this is their this is their position all along. They want concessions out of NATO. They're just going to stand tight uh, and and demand concessions. And the you know the concern is is during the meetings between President Putin and President Macron when they discuss different different options, different positions were put forward. I think that was the language that was used. Some of those positions might fly. The concerns are while acknowledging as as uh, President Macron appeared to do that that Russia has some cause for concern while acknowledging that. If you're going to diminish that concern, do you give a concession? And I think that's and that's the worry. Uh, and I think that's part of uh, President Biden's conversation with Macron, making sure that he's aligned with everyone else in NATO. Uh, no, con no concessions for for uh, Putin's position of keeping up that maximum pressure on Ukraine. Sam Kiley in Ukraine, Nick Robertson in Russia. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Breaking news out of Los Angeles, the NFL commissioner just answered questions about claims that owners are offering coaches money to lose games. What did he say in response? That's next. There's some breaking news for you in our sports lead. Just moments ago during a pre-Super Bowl press conference, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell faced some tough questions about the NFL's rather dismal record on hiring black and minority head coaches with the recent hiring of Lovey Smith as head coach of the Houston Texans, the NFL now has only two black head coaches, despite black players making up roughly 70% of the league's players. This renewed scrutiny of the league's poor record comes following a federal class action lawsuit filed by former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores, which alleged racial discrimination. CNN's Andy Scholes is live for us in Inglewood, California, just outside Los Angeles, the site of Sunday's Super Bowl. And Andy, you were at this press conference. Tell us what Goodell had to say. Well, Jake, it was a lot more of just talk with no real solutions. Roger Goodell has been asked about uh, the lack of minority coaches in the NFL many times for many years at this press conference. He even said they started off last year with the very same topic. And here we are yet again. Roger Goodell has been the NFL commissioner for 15 years and uh, he was asked, you know, do you take responsibility for the lack of diversity? And he said, I do. I take responsibility along with the ownership. Goodell also said he's not aware if the hiring process is flawed in the NFL, but that is something they obviously do need to find out. Uh, one solution he actually did talk about today is bringing in independent people to take a look at the whole process. Uh, and here's more of what he had to say. What we want to try to see is the outcomes, right? We want to see... Um, black head coaches in the NFL and coaches of, of, of people of color uh, and eventually gender uh, that we think is all important. So it's an inclusive process and hopefully an inclusive outcome. We won't tolerate racism. We won't tolerate discrimination. If there are policies that we need to modify, we're going to do that. Uh, we will absolutely do it. If we've seen evidence of discrimination, we will deal with that in a very serious way that would... Yeah, Jake, when it comes to the Rooney rule, Commissioner Goodell said, you know, they could keep the rule, add to the rule, throw it out and come up with something altogether. He said everything uh, is on the table moving forward. So Flores also had this allegation uh, that he had been paid to lose games in order to get a, a better draft pick uh, for the Dolphins. What did Goodell have yeah. to say about that? Yeah, he was asked about that, and uh, he, he basically said that they take the integrity of the game just as importantly as they do with diversity. They're going to investigate those allegations, and if they find out uh, that some rules were broken, that they will be handled severely. All right, Andy Scholes and Inglewood, thank you so much. Here to discuss former NFL cornerback 
Dominique Foxworth, he played with the Broncos, Falcons, and Ravens. He is also a past president of the NFL Players Association. So good to see you. Um, NFL Commissioner Goodell, uh, you just heard him saying the league won't tolerate racism and discrimination, and the NFL will deal with any allegations in a, quote, very serious way if they find it. Um, What's your reaction? Yeah, I think Roger... Like his hands are tied, honestly, in this situation. If you look at the league office, like the hires that Roger has control over, like the diversity is pretty good. There are plenty of women executives and men and black men and former players. But the problem is that once you go out to the teams, the owners have the power. And I think often we talk about it as if it's some sort of institutional or systemic problem, which we've been calling it that for a long time. And I think that gave the owners cover, but it doesn't seem like it's systemic or institutional. It feels individual because the opportunity to hire black coaches has been there. It's there every year. There are plenty of black coaches in the pipeline to um, like successful coordinators. Eric Bieniemy comes to mind as someone who held the offensive coordinator job at Kansas City, a job that was held by two men previous to him. Both of those got head coaching jobs. Eric Bieniemy, his numbers and statistics have been better than both of those guys, still doesn't have a job. And the owner's also willing to go outside of the traditional pipeline to hire white coaches. I think of like Joe Judge, Cliff Kingsbury, Brandon Staley, Josh McCown is someone who's been a finalist for many of these jobs that have very little um, coaching experience. So I think we have to be honest about what the problem is. And the problem isn't the the system or the institutions. It feels like the problem is biases that are inside the people who make the decisions and who have the ultimate power. We can't blame Roger for this. Roger's doing as much as he can. The people that are above him, the guys who own the teams, have to confront themselves and confront the way that they view the candidates out there and make honest choices, not the choices that are um, skewed by their own biases. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a good point. that We all like to think of Roger Goodell as being in charge, but he's not really in charge. And all he can do, I mean, he's not, he can't it, make anybody who's a team owner not be racist, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, he has, he has no power. Yeah. He, he can't say, hey, you know, billionaire number five, Stop being a racist. Yeah, they they elected him like they he works for them. He needs to keep them happy. It's not the other way around. Like he does not have the power over them. Uh, They come to him to do things like he did today, which is why one of my points or one of the most important things to me is that we take these questions to the ownership because Roger's job. Part of his job is to stand up there and us to ridicule him and judge him for the problems in the NFL. In this case, for the issues of racial bias in the NFL. He takes these arrows while the owners can stand in the background and continue to kind of mistreat the candidates that are out there and bring guys in like David Culley and not give him a full chance down in Houston before you fire him. The same thing happened in Arizona with Steve Wilkes. Other black coaches get these opportunities that aren't true opportunities. So I think Roger is doing the best he can. I think of all the people in the NFL, Roger's one of them who wants this to be different. But you can't go into the heads, the hearts, and the minds of the people making the decisions and make them for them. So I'm not sure. Maybe it is something that they don't, it's unconscious. Maybe they don't know that they have these biases, but the numbers certainly kind of pan out that the biases exist and they need to address it. The NFL has this thing called the Rooney Rule. Uh, it requires teams to interview at least two external minority candidates for head coaching positions. It's been in place for almost 20 years. Um, since the rule was ado- adopted, only 11% of head coaching positions have been filled by a black candidates. What do you think of the rule, Rooney Rule? Is it, is it a failure? 
Um, I think it's certainly a failure. There's been some progress made. I think the Rudy rule was introduced because they wanted to kind of elevate the uh, perception of certain coaches. So they thought that bringing black coaches in for opportunities would then raise their profile and then next cycle they might get an opportunity. It hasn't really worked that way. It's become more of just like a box to check. And that was part of what Brian Flores was upset about. And many black coaches have turned down interviews because they recognize that the team has already decided who they want to hire. And that's a real thing across all industries. Oftentimes, the person who is in charge has the decision to make, knows who they want to hire. Then there's other formalities that that they have to go to go through before they hire their candidate. And the black coaches have been sick of this and many of them have been turning down these opportunities. So the Rooney Rule hasn't worked because the point of the Rooney Rule was to bring people to the owner's attention. And the hope was the owners were not individually biased. They just didn't know these people. And now we're going to introduce them to you and then you will not have an excuse. They've been introduced for a couple of decades now. They've been meeting these people. They've been seeing these black coaches. They've been succeeding at lower levels. They've been succeeding in other jobs. They still are not getting the opportunities as consistently as they should. And often when they get the opportunity, David Cully comes to mind. It's not a true opportunity. It's an opportunity to come in there and keep the seat warm until they find the coach that they actually want. The same thing with Brian Flores. The, the hope was to bring him down there. Allegedly, he would lose. They would tank. They get a high draft pick, and then they bring in the coach that they really want. Yeah, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him not be racist. Dominique not racist. Fox. <laughs> Dominique Fox. <laughs> well done, Jake. You, you can have you. you can have that. That's a little gift for me to you. Thanks so much, <laughs> Dominique. Good to see you. A different way to follow the money. The latest target of a, a January sixth committee subpoena is one of Trump's most controversial advisors. Stay with us for the details. Some breaking news for you now on our politics lead. Another Trump loyalist and former top aide has been handed a subpoena by the January 6th committee investigating the deadly insurrection. This time it's former White House trade advisor Peter Navarro. CNN's Ryan Nobles is live on Capitol Hill. Ryan Navarro joins a, a long list of close Trump allies who have been subpoenaed. What, what does the committee want to hear from him? Well, this doesn't come as a, as, a, as a surprise at all, Jake, in particular because Peter Navarro has been so brazen Uh, in in talking about his efforts to stand in the way of the certification of the 2020 election results. And that's exactly what the committee wants to talk to him about. Navarro was part of a plot trying to find evidence uh, of fraud in some of these swing states and also uh, part of the group of people that were coming up with reasons for the former Vice President Mike Pence to stand in the way of the certification process on January 6th. And we know that the committee truly believes that this peddling of misinformation about the election results Uh, in their mind, fomented this anger across the country uh, and led to so many people coming to Washington on that day and then eventually storming the Capitol. So uh, Navarro, as I've said before, has not been shy to talk uh, about the role he played in all of this. He wrote a book where he detailed some of that work. He's done extensive interviews talking about it. So now the committee wants him to get in front of them uh, to discuss what else he knows, what he hasn't talked about in these public settings to find out more about how this all connects together. Uh, Jake Navarro is somebody uh, who is usually willing to tangle in settings like this. So uh, we've reached out to him for comment to see how he's going to respond to all of this. But uh, he is certainly somebody the committee is very interested in talking to. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. President Biden is looking for advice, calling on Senate Democrats to share their thoughts on his possible Supreme Court pick. What's he likely hearing? That's next.
Welcome back. In our politics lead, the search for the next Supreme Court justice is fully underway. And now President Biden is inviting Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats to the White House for their advice. A Biden administration official telling CNN that President Biden also spoke with Republicans this week, but declined to provide further details on that. Let's bring in CNN Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic and CNN anchor of Inside Politics Sunday, Abby Phillip. Abby, the president said from the beginning he'd seek the advice of the Senate in the process to pick the next justice. What does the outreach look like so far? Well, as far as we know, he's met with the Judiciary Committee's ranking member, uh, Senator Grassley. Uh, The White House won't say a whole lot more than that, but you could imagine that there are several other moderate Republicans potentially that the president would want to talk to. Some who have spoken out about the Supreme Court, Court issue, Senator Graham, Senator Tim Scott, both from South Carolina, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, and others, Susan Collins. These are potential people. But remember, Jake, President Biden has said he doesn't want to be the president's senator anymore. And I think the White House is intentionally staying mom so as to not give the impression that he's diving too deep into the vote counting of all of this. But I think it's fair to say that probably these conversations are happening privately. And, And Joan, the White House says Biden has spent several nights in the residence studying binders uh, with all sorts of information about potential picks. Right. Uh, what is he looking for? Well, he's already going through some cases, but he will receive over the next couple of days much more material on these the leading contenders. Katanji Brown-Jackson of the D.C. Circuit, Michelle Childs, a district court judge down in South Carolina, and Leandra Kruger, a California Supreme Court justice. What he'll want to see is their records, their judicial records, their biographies. He wants someone with the intellectual tools to be on the court. And of those three, there's no, real, there's no question that they're all very competent, you know, superior credentials. But he's also going to look for judicial temperament. You know, when he was a Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, he was always doing these gut checks. Mm-hmm. He wanted to know what people, t- how, you know, what made people tick, what kind of leaders would they be. And he wants to be able to roll out someone who will get the kind of attention that Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Sonia Sotomayor got, you know, somebody who sort of speaks yeah. to resonates with with Americans. But bottom line, the most important thing will be the political judgment. With just one vote majority in the Senate, it's got to be somebody who is foolproof, no surprises. You know, ultimately, he'll want to have the confidence of this person's record that there won't be any any slip up in the end. I mean, there's there's no question that he probably has an eye out for the oppo book, effectively. You want to be looking at the cases, not just to see what kind of judicial temperament they have, but where the attacks can come from. He's gone through this process before many, many times. He understands that much of this process really is political, no matter how people want to take it out of the political sphere. So there does seem to be some momentum in some quarters for South Carolina District Court Judge Michelle Childs. Uh, She has the banking of Congressman Jim Clyburn, who's the third ranking Democrat in the House. Uh, Also, the two Republican senators from South Carolina have said nice things. That doesn't mean they're going to vote for her, but they've said nice things. Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham. Um, Does that mean that somebody should think, well, we know Biden likes to be bipartisan. uh, And obviously the whole promise of a black woman on the court is Jim Clyburn's demand in exchange for his endorsement in the primaries. It's probably going to be Judge Childs or no? No, I don't think I I actually don't think it necessarily will be. It could end up being, but I, I think that choice is you know, at least 15 days out from that kind of choice that we would all see. I think, I think Jim Clyburn is important here. I do not think Lindsey Graham is important here. I think the statement of Lisa Murkowski to you on Sunday is more important about bipartisanship. But I think that uh, Judge Childs is not the only one who could get bipartisan support. Right. 
you know, first of all, Judge Jackson has been before the Senate Judiciary Committee you know, three times already from the, when she was on the Sentencing Commission, when she was on a district court, and when she was on the D.C. Circuit. She has been embraced by Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee and some of the uh, Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Including Lindsey Graham. Exactly. And Leandra Kruger has a, has a record that's a little bit more moderate that might draw bipartisan support, too. So I don't, th- I, as I said, I think what Lisa Murkowski says has a little bit more breadth than what Lindsey Graham said. Lindsey Graham has been supporting uh, uh, Judge Childs since she was a district court nominee. He, he went to her, you know, he presented her to the Senate. I mean, and the, the big issue for uh, not just for Clyburn, but perhaps for some other Republicans like Graham and, and Scott is uh, Judge Childs' background. She is not from an Ivy League school like many of the justices who currently sit on the court are. That is all good and well, and that is important, but you also have the backdrop of a lot of Republicans actually gearing up to argue that this potential nominee is being chosen because of her race and not because of her qualifications. It's actually kind of a, um, a tough spot to you know, put the White, the White House in potentially where you could be teeing up a nominee who's not from an Ivy League pedigree and then going on the Republican side and attacking that person for this very same reason. And I just want to add one more thing, Jake, that you remember. This is going to be the first Democratic appointee since 2010. You know, they didn't get their appointee through in uh, 2016 with Merrick Garland. So after a dozen years, are they going to pick somebody they really want or someone who they think Republicans want? Joan Biskupic and Abby Phillip, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. In it for the long haul, protesters now blocking multiple border crossings between Canada and the U.S., and it does not seem like they'll be moving anytime soon. We're going to go live to Canada next. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, not what it seems. Canadian truckers protesting a vaccine mandate at several border crossings into the U.S., but there are several lies you may have heard about these protests. We're about to dispel them. Plus, A tale of two leaders, an inside look at how Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy are taking very different paths for the future of the Republican Party. And leading this hour on the front lines as we learn new details about what U.S. forces are doing in Eastern Europe in preparation for a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine, CNN went to where the action could soon be, where Ukrainian troops are preparing for battle. As CNN's Alex Marquardt reports, Ukrainian forces are constantly aware that the Russians are dangerously close and armed and ready to move at any moment. Flying low over the Ukrainian countryside, this Soviet-era military plane heads toward the border with Russia. We traveled here with senior Ukrainian officials and military leaders to get a sense of the mood and preparations where Russian troops are the closest near Ukraine's eastern Donbas region. This is Avdivka, where many of these Ukrainian troops, who are mostly young men, have been fighting Russian-backed forces on this cold and desolate front. Go. Go. They're eager to show us how they've been living and fighting here in a conflict involving Russia that has been largely forgotten, but which has taken over 14,000 lives in the past eight years, according to the United Nations. Ivan has been here the whole time. Like the other soldiers here, he says they're confident they could face a new Russian invasion. uh, Of course, we're ready for some bad situation. And we basically wait here. Do you think that will happen, this bad situation? Uh, I'm not, uh, I don't know, because I don't know what's in the head of the guys in that uh, territory. But for you, the war has already started. Of course. We're taken to the farthest point forward, where sandbags and tires are piled high. Then, 
So there was just a burst of what sounded like automatic gunfire. Uh, we are just 70 meters, uh, we are told, from the fighters on the other side of the front line. We're rushed away, our escorts keen for us to see what happens, but not too closely. Hearing this gunfire and being so close to this front line, you can't help but think that even if diplomacy succeeds in preventing Russia from invading Ukraine yet again, this fighting, which has been raging since the last time Russia invaded Ukraine, will almost certainly continue. NATO leaders say that ending the fighting already happening here is a critical part of preventing further Russian aggression. With NATO so far refusing to send troops to Ukraine to fight, Ukraine insists it needs more help. But the important issue what they need is additional weapons assistance from the West, from our Western allies, potentially financial assistance. That's what we need to make sure that we will defend not only peace in this country, but peace in Europe. As if to punctuate their point, more gunfire rings out. And Jake, uh, Ukraine did receive another shipment of weapons today, this time from the United Kingdom. But I spoke with two senior Ukrainian generals today who said that they desperately need critical air defense systems to offset uh, Russian air superiority. The commander of Ukraine's ground forces says that he has made this request clear to the Biden administration. He said they have not gotten a, a strong yes or no answer. They have not gotten uh, a clear answer. Uh, but they do hope, Jake, that their needs will soon be met. All right. Alex Marquardt in Ukraine, thank you so much. Let's discuss this all with retired General Wesley Clark, the NATO Supreme Allied Commander from 1997 to 2000. Uh, General, good to see you. I'd like to start with your reaction to Alex Marquardt's reporting from the front lines. A good reminder that this conflict's been going on for quite some time. You bet it has. And uh, a lot of Ukrainians volunteered to their armed forces and have served their and, of course, uh, they're on standby if they're needed to return to uniform or to, to fight again. So um, it's, it's been an experience that strengthened Ukraine. Putin meant to bleed Ukraine, but he misread the situation. Instead, Ukraine has strengthened itself based on the support that Putin has given to these uh, so-called separatists in the Donbass. The White House has approved a plan for American forces in Poland to try to help Americans who might try to evacuate Ukraine if indeed Russia invades. But those U.S. forces are not authorized to enter Ukraine if war breaks out. How different might this all look from what happened in Afghanistan? Well, it's too early to, to really do these comparisons, Jake. But, of course, the uh, idea that they won't enter Ukraine is absolutely appropriate right now. But um, the Russians should be concerned because... America is a powerful country. It is somewhat unpredictable. In 1950, when the North Koreans invaded South Korea, the United States was supposed to not do anything. And yet the United States did do something. We reacted strongly and became engaged in that conflict. So Russia can't be sure what NATO is going to do. Um, the the situation is unpredictable. Suppose there, the Russians come in quickly. Uh, it's over in a day. Uh, there's no appreciable civilian suffering. OK, OK. But suppose it isn't over in a day. Suppose you get the casualty reports and they've used chemical weapons or something and they're they're brutalizing people. The outcry in NATO countries may demand action at that point. Something may change. So Russia 
can't know for sure. And this is part of what should deter Vladimir Putin from executing this attack. President Biden said this week that Americans in Ukraine would be wise to leave, but he did not order an evacuation. Do you think he should? I think it's a little too early for that. Based on all of the information we're getting, everyone seems to be quite confident that we've got another few days before um, Putin has to make a decision. You have to look at this as a sort of three-phase Russian operation, Jake. First phase is uh, build up the forces, take whatever diplomatic concessions you can get, try to split NATO, try to show the United States is being weak and so forth. That hasn't worked so far. Our buddy's continuing to torque up the pressure and Ukrainians are beginning to take this very, very seriously, this threat of an attack. Second phase would be if he decides he hasn't got enough, if he looks at China and says Xi Jinping might think I'm weak if I don't attack, maybe he makes the attack. Uh, and then, you know, we don't know how, what kind of an attack it'll be. Could be all azimuths, could be a more limited attack, could be phased to gauge re- NATO reaction. And then um, that's when the evacuations uh, and the assistance to the evacuees is going to be critical. And then there's a third phase. And that third phase is what happens after that. Presumably, at some point, he's going to say, oh, we're getting a ceasefire or please help us end the violence here. And then, of course, we want to end the violence. But that's when the sanctions have to kick in. And that will be another whole struggle because Putin may be betting that based on his intelligence from allied governments, that they're going to have a hard time giving up their gas and oil from Russia and other financial transactions that they have. So this is a very complicated, difficult, long uh, process. In the last 24 hours, Russia has added 2,000 combat forces to border areas near Ukraine. More Russian warships are moving into the Black Sea. Russia's prepping military exercises in multiple locations. Uh, And yet the Kremlin is saying that Russia is facing an unprecedented threat from NATO. Yeah, well, that's that's all propaganda. You know that all the promises not to attack and all that and and saying they won't do anything in this NATO threat is all propaganda. And so as you know, as an analyst, I understand this. I hope the American people understand it, that this isn't real. Putin certainly doesn't feel threatened by NATO. But this is part of his strategy is to torque up the pressure and try to break the cohesion of NATO or so discourage President Zelensky that he finally just says, oh, I give up, I quit, I will never want to be in NATO. We can't subject the people of Ukraine to this. But I don't think President Zelensky is going to quit. I don't think the Ukrainians are going to turn away from their desire to be part of the West. And so I think uh, Mr. Putin's backed himself into a corner. If he does attack, he's going to become the equivalent of a rogue nation, a, a war criminal. It will be worse than than what uh, we think North Korea might do to South Korea. He'll be and should be treated as a war criminal. That's aggressive war is against international law. He has no right to do this. It's not about power politics. It's not about, oh, nations do these things. No, it's very clearly against international law. He's playing the part of a criminal right now in his threats. Former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, General Wesley Clark. Thank you so much, sir. Good to see you. Coming up, the same party, the same Congress, but these two Republican leaders are definitely not on the same page when it comes to January 6th. Then, tough choices for some Olympic athletes who grew up in the U.S. but are competing for a different country. That's ahead. Ahead. 
Topping our politics lead, a tale of two Republican leaders in two vastly different directions they're trying to take their party. Today, the House's top Republican, Kevin McCarthy, once again defended the Republican National Committee after it censured two Republicans, Congressman Adam Kinzinger and Congresswoman Liz Cheney, and seemingly referred to the January 6th attack as legitimate political discourse. That's a quote. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell blatantly condemned the RNC's actions, and as CNN's Manu Raji reports for us now, this disagreement is creating another split in the party, which is gearing up for the midterms. Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell this week tried to convey the reality about January 6th. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. But many in his party won't have it. Do you agree with uh, the Republican leader's uh, characterization of what happened on January 6th? It was mostly a peaceful protest. I don't know where that, I would go that far, but it was something that we uh, were not proud of. But not a violent insurrection. Oh, it was violent. I just don't, I, I wouldn't call it an insurrection. A violent protest. Senator Ted Cruz, who used to refer to the events of January 6th as a violent terrorist attack until getting blowback from the right, rejected the GOP leader's comments. The word insurrection is politically charged propaganda. I think it is a mistake for Republicans to repeat the political propaganda of Democrats and the corporate media. The debate was ripped open last week when the Republican National Committee took the unprecedented step of censuring two Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, for joining with Democrats to investigate the attack. Adding to the controversy was language in the resolution saying the two Republicans were persecuting citizens who engaged in legitimate political discourse. House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy defended the RNC and said the resolution should have specified that January 6th investigators had subpoenaed some RNC members who were in Florida at the time of the attack. I think had they explained out what they were talking to, this wouldn't be controversial at all because they weren't referring to um, people who have broken into this building. Everyone understands. So you support that resolution? You support The RNC put out their resolution. I think they have a right to do their resolution and what they want to do. RNC chairwoman Rona McDaniel also tried to clean it up, saying she condemns all acts of violence and the probe has gone beyond its scope, pointing to a subpoena sent to an RNC member who was not in D.C. on January 6. But there is a reason why some RNC members have been subpoenaed. The committee is looking into allegations that individuals tried to submit fake electoral certificates in seven states that Joe Biden won. I don't think it was a wise statement on the RNC's part. Violence is always... Not legitimate. Their statement put us backwards. I don't think it's right. Now, just moments ago, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell responded to the conservatives who are downplaying the notion that this was a violent insurrection, saying it to us, this is pretty, this is pretty simple. We are in the middle of a national crime wave. The Republican Party is a pro-police, tough-on-crime party, and I am a pro-police, tough-on-crime Republican across the board. Jake? All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill for us. Thank you so much. Uh, Let's discuss. Alice, this afternoon we also got a statement from Donald Trump about Mitch McConnell saying, quote, Mitch McConnell does not speak for the Republican Party and does not represent the views of the vast majority of its voters. Is he right? Look, he also called McConnell old crow, which actually is pretty good bourbon. But I'll, I'll say this. Look, 
I think rational Republicans of the Republican Party view this uh, all the same way. They view that we had free and fair elections. They view that Donald Trump lost. They view January 6th as an insurrection. And it was not legitimate political discourse. I think the Republican Party, including Donald Trump, does a tremendous disservice when we are engaged in the circular firing squad and, and more focused on the big lie than opening up the big tent when we should be taking it to the Democrats. We should be taking it to them on their policies uh, with regard to the economy, with regard to inflation and sure. COVID and the border. But, but here's the thing. They're, they're more focused on going against Liz Cheney and Mitch McConnell. Our opponents are Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. Okay. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but... And I'll, I'll bring it to you, Powers. Uh, the question is, uh, the question is, who actually represents Republican Party voters these days? Is it Mitch McConnell or is it Donald Trump? Well, you know, I mean, she talked about rational Republicans. I was going to say what percentage of the Republican large Party? percentage of Republicans, unfortunately, do believe the big lie. Right. So I think it's probably fair to say that rational people uh, don't believe that. But a lot of Republican voters do believe that. And so. Uh, I would actually argue that Donald Trump probably speaks a little bit more for the voters, um, at least the base of the party. But Mitch McConnell also represents the Republican Party. Obviously, he's the leader in the Senate. And I think he clearly believes that it's time to move past Trump and that he doesn't want to pick fights with him. And what Alice just said, which is the Republican Party should be focused on attacking Joe Biden, not attacking each other. Yeah. Casey, a, a few weeks or months ago, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene said to Steve Bannon that they represent the base of the Republican Party, that they're not fringe. They represent the base of the Republican Party. Here's Congresswoman uh, Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene uh, talking, uh, I think, earlier today. Not only do we have the D.C. jail, which is the D.C. gulag, but now we have Nancy Pelosi's gazpacho police spying on members of Congress, spying on the legislative work that we do, spying on our staff and spying on American citizens that want to come talk to their representatives. This government has turned into something it was never. All right. So that's enough of that. But I mean. I, I guess gazpacho. the gazpacho police, I assume she meant the Gestapo police, I do too. which is another reference that would be an offensive one that she makes inappropriately. Maybe she did it on purpose Maybe, to avoid <laughs> said accusations. Uh, right. No, we, we, nobody can accuse her of using anti-Semitic tropes or Holocaust belittling tropes if no. she uh, is referring to the gazpacho police. I guess she's belittling the Gestapo by calling them gazpacho. Who knows? By the way, in the San point. Francisco, they could very well have a gazpacho police <laughs> just as a separate issue if it's too warm. The, the... What are the import-export rules around gazpacho? I'm not, Tell I'm me. Not quite I guess my question is, why are people siding with that? Like, you have a choice here. What is the incentive structure where somebody would say, yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene's side of this, not Liz Cheney. That, I want to be on the gazpacho police side of this. I, you know, Jake, all I can say on that is that there are very few leaders in the Republican Party who've been willing to stand up and say what Liz Cheney has said. And instead, Republicans are hearing from their news outlets, many of which are increasingly to the right of Fox News, and the information that they're consuming is telling them that this big lie is actually true and they're choosing to believe it because you know, Trump has been, Donald Trump was particularly out there about saying, look, the reason I bash the media is so that when you write a story that's true, I can say plausibly you shouldn't believe them and they won't. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it. But look, Mitch McConnell's comments were interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, he has been someone who has stood on principle on January 6th. I will give him that. But he never does anything if it doesn't line up with his ambitions to retain power, both inside the Senate as the majority leader 
And that means worrying about how his senators feel, but also worrying about how the electorate feels. And he knows that so long as Republicans are having this fight, are, and, and they are literally divided. They are divided into two different groups. There is the base of the party, the furthest of which are with, Mar- with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And then there are a lot of people who are alienated from Donald Trump's party and who want an alternative. But he knows he's not going to win back the Senate majority if they're talking about this. If, right. if people are out there calling January 6th legitimate political discourse. If he's out there talking about inflation, he might win. So that's, I think, part of why he went out and, and, and did this. And I, I don't think we should lose sight of that. And that's, that talks about where the country is as a whole, as opposed to just the Republican Party itself. What's your take on this? On a more granular level, because I think you're hitting on a very important point right now, you have to look at who in his caucus also is up for re-election. When you have senators like Lisa Murkowski, who, who, who was just talking to you the other day about this, who is up for re-election, and she often is out of line with what Donald Trump says, and you want your senators and your caucus to trust you and get re-elected— her opponent is a Trump-endorsed Republican. So that's one thing that he may be taking into consideration. But when you asked what the incentive is, though, for people to take this argument, what wins in a House race is not the same as wins statewide a in a Senate. In a, house. In a primary Specific. in a House right. race or, or what wins statewide in a Senate race. Those are not the same argument. And so it may be beneficial for some House Republicans or Kevin McCarthy to take one side of this issue that does not make sense for a senator who's up for re-election who's a Republican or Senate candidate. Well, and, and speaking of primaries, there's also the factor that many are keeping in the back of their minds. They realize if they stick their head too far out of the foxhole, they are going to be knocked down by Donald Trump. So mark my word, after the filing deadlines in a lot of these states where people realize, hey, I don't have a primary opponent and Donald Trump cannot put one in against me, then we're going to see, I believe, a lot more people coming out saying, let's stop talking about the past and let's start talking about the future. And that's going to happen after these filing deadlines. I want to show something to you, Alice, just to, just some, to, to make you feel better. Here is uh, <laughs> Alabama Governor Kay Ivey. She's up for re-election. And here's her new ad. Uh, And she takes on Joe Biden the way that you wanted to, in a creative way. Take a look. Growing up, my mom and dad told us, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Well, here's what I have to say about Joe Biden. Poor Joe. Bless his heart. As we say in the South, bless their heart. I thought you'd like that. I, I love and that. And also, no lies. No, no, no lies. No lies about the election. No lies about January 6th. You not attacking Liz Cheney. Focus on being nice. It's refreshing. Yes, no, no sleepy Joes, no criticism. It's good. Just if, as Kay says, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. But one of the other problems that I, that I see going forward um, is that the redistricting has made uh, the seats more partisan. Democrats and Republicans both. Yeah. Uh, and that is going to make this even worse. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I am, I'll be interested to see if what Alice just said will come to fruition, if you actually will have people standing up to Trump, even if you get through a primary, he still looms very large over the Republican Party and looms very large over the base. And so I think that because, especially in the House, because of the redistricting, because of how homogenous these districts are, I think there's an incentive definitely to align yourselves more with these Marjorie Taylor Greens and with the Donald Trump uh, view of the world. 
What do you think? Well, I, I think that we have a major problem as a country because, frankly, we used to have, what, 50-something, or we currently have 50-something districts that are basically swing districts. We're going to have something closer to 20 by the time this process is done. I mean, those are the people, you know, year in and year out that I covered Congress, those are the people that you went to to find out what the heck was actually going to happen in Congress. Were they actually going to get anything done? It was always on the shoulders of the moderate Democrats or the moderate Republicans, depending on who held the speakership. They were the people who governed. They were the people who had relationships on the other side. They were the people who had to be really serious about being a top-notch, uh, frankly, person, because running for a, a, an ele- in a general election is really hard, and they were concerned about losing. And that brings out higher-quality candidates because it demands it. And so the fewer of those people that we have, the worse off we are in total. Yeah, they're going to be replaced by the gazpacho police. <laughs> Thanks one and all for being here. It appears the anti-COVID restriction protesters are in it for the long haul, blocking even more U.S.-Canadian border crossings. We're live in Ottawa next. And our worldly demonstrators digging in two weeks into that trucker protest at the U.S.-Canada border. They call it the Freedom Convoy. It started in Canada's capital city of Ottawa. For days, truckers have been camped outside Parliament and the Prime Minister's home, while others block key access points to the United States, near Detroit and as far west as the border crossing into Montana. CNN's Paula Newton joins us now live from Ottawa. And Paula, parts of Canada are are talking about rolling back their vaccine mandates. Uh, Saskatchewan, for example. Is this welcome news to these protesters? Can they take any credit for it? I mean, look, it's more than Saskatchewan, it's Alberta, it's Quebec. This is happening because the Omicron wave is peaking. And these provincial leaders have always said, look, when we can, we will roll them back. Is it satisfying the uh, truckers? Absolutely not. I mean, what's happened here, Jake, is they are looking for so much more than that. They don't want these leaders to even return to any restrictions, no matter what happens with COVID. Let me give you a little tour while we're here, though, Jake. I mean, as you said, we're in front of Parliament, right? That is Parliament right there. And here it looks more like a tailgate party now going into its second week. They tell us they have no intention of moving. What's been incredible to me is if you look over here, Jake, that's the prime minister's office. They have been parked right outside the prime minister's office now for, as I said, the better part of two weeks. What is happening now, though, is that politicians are starting to get together, seeing what they can do. And the fear that I have heard from regular everyday people, not just in this city, Um, Jake, but just around Canada saying if this is the kind of civil disobedience, you know, that is tolerated, they fear for what can happen next. And that, you know, that fear is real. I mean, consider what happened in in Toronto in the last few hours. Police say on social media they heard rumors that another protest might pop up and they had to go to really seal off the uh, provincial legislature there. This is escalating almost by the hour, Jake. All right, Paula Newton in Ottawa, thank you so much. Then there is, of course, the false information surrounding these protests. Let's bring in CNN's Daniel Dale, who, in addition to being our resident fact checker, also hails from the Great White North. Good to see you, Daniel. Um, Let's start with some of the images uh, that we've seen shared on social media, these large crowds. Uh, Are they from these protests? Yeah, so Jake, there are a ton of photos and videos going around Twitter, Facebook, and so on that are captioned as if they are from Ottawa or about people in support of what's going on in Ottawa, but that are from entirely different events from entirely different years. So there's one that's going around purporting to be a huge crowd in Ottawa. It's actually from Moscow in 1991, a giant anti-communist demonstration. There's another photo that's going around on Facebook purporting to be a group of Amish people supporting this 
current protest convoy. It's actually a photo of a group of Mennonites simply going to church. Uh, There is an image that was posted by Tesla uh, chief executive Elon Musk, who didn't make an explicit claim, but given the context, a lot of people thought this aerial shot was a shot of the current Canadian protest convoy. Well, it is a Canadian convoy, but from 2018, a truck convoy in support of the oil and gas industry. Tesla, of course, makes electric vehicles. (laughs) And you you ran down a claim by a man who says he's one of the protest organizers who said that... uh Half of the police in, in Ottawa had resigned during these protests. What, what about that? That claim is completely imaginary. Ottawa police say they've had zero resignations, none at all in connection to this protest. Uh, and this protest organizer, as well as other organizers, have a history of making things up, of making completely false claims, but that hasn't stopped them from going viral. This one uh, made its way to Twitter, where a British actor got 11,000 retweets repeating it. And uh, this protest organizer and others have made claims like uh, 50,000 trucks were involved in this convoy. That 50,000 number was not even close to true. Canadian journalists put the number somewhere in the hundreds of trucks. Um, But this claim was repeated on Fox News by former Canadian hockey star Theo Fleury. Uh, It was repeated on Joe Rogan's podcast. So a lot of nonsense coming from the protest organizers that are being repeated uh, elsewhere. You know, it's a successful protest. They don't need to lie about it. They've already already achieved what they want to achieve. You you also looked in some claims um, that the Canadian government is instructing hotels to not give rooms or reservations to protesters. Any truth to that? There's no truth to that. I contacted the specific hotel that was mentioned in this tweet, as well as five other Ottawa hotels. They said complete nonsense, did not happen. The Canadian government says ridiculous. The Ottawa government says ridiculous. Now, I contacted the National Post newspaper columnist in Canada who promoted this claim on Twitter. She said she didn't even know it was true. It was just something she had been hearing from the protesters, and she put it out there on Twitter so the mainstream Canadian media could vet its accuracy. I need to respectfully suggest as a fact checker, if you don't know as a journalist if something is true, don't just throw it out there and say, I'm just asking questions. It is incumbent upon all of us to vet the accuracy ourselves before promoting it on social media. Daniel Dale, thank you so much. Good to see you, my Canadian friend. Thank you, sir. It could be a Super Bowl record. Can the teams take the heat? Stick around. In our world lead, a looming deadline to restore the Iran nuclear deal as far as the Biden White House is concerned. U.S. officials engaged in what they're calling the final stretch of talks with Iran to reach an agreement on limiting their nuclear program. The Biden administration poised to ramp up its efforts if an end of February deadline is not met. CNN's Kylie Atwood is live for us at the State Department. Kylie, can we expect an agreement to be made on the Iran nuclear deal by this deadline? It's not looking likely, Jake, and we heard from senators today who came out of a briefing from special representative to Iran for the United States, Rob Malley, and what they said after that briefing is that uh, there is a deal potentially in sight, but you have to squint really hard to see it. Those are the words of Senator Murphy. Senator Menendez said it's increasingly unlikely that there will be a deal. It's increasingly challenging to see that because the window for which a deal would have to be struck in is increasingly growing smaller. And it's our reporting that uh, the Biden administration believes they only have until the end of February to strike this deal or to seek an alternate path. Of course, that's because Iran continues to develop its nuclear program outside the bounds of the Iran nuclear deal. And how much of a threat does the Biden administration think the, the Iran nuclear program poses to the United States? 
Well, when you talk about the U.S. homeland, uh, the Iran nuclear program, if they developed a nuclear bomb, it wouldn't pose an immediate threat to the United States because they'd still need about one or two years, according to experts, to develop uh, the deliverables, right? That's the weaponry that that would go on to potentially reach the United States. But that aside, the U.S. has a tremendous amount of interest in the region, uh, not to mention U.S. embassies, uh, U.S. personnel, and of course, our allies in the region. So this would be a catastrophic event if Iran had this nuclear weapon uh, for the region in the short term and for the United States, of course, in the long term. Jake? All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thank you so much. What does a censored press look like? Well, just ask CNN's reporters in China. We're going to go behind China's wall of censorship next. Now it's time for our Behind China's Wall series, in which we go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the Olympic Games. The Chinese government hopes to use the Games to distract the world from its crackdowns on freedoms, its crimes against humanity, its genocide. Today, the Hong Kong government, which is increasingly bowing to Beijing, is denying claims made by 21 countries, including the U.S., about how Hong Kong has been suppressing the free press, including recent government raids and arrests at independent media organizations in Hong Kong, the multilateral statement cites a, quote, deep concern for suppression of human rights and freedom of speech. CNN's David Culver is live for us in Beijing. And David, this joint statement follows the recent release of an annual survey by the Foreign Correspondents Club of China, which found 99% of foreign journalists say reporting conditions in China did not meet international standards. China's approach to foreign journalists seems to be in direct contrast to its supposed Olympic spirit of excellence and friendship and respect. Tell us about your experiences reporting there. Yeah, Jake, it's gotten increasingly difficult even in just the last couple of years. Now, on two fronts, really, interference with our news gathering, and they've made it personal. So uh, when we talk about the news gathering, our visas, for one, have been limited to just three months instead of a year. Renewal is never a guarantee. And then you've got many foreign news bureaus here that are just, frankly, understaffed because the Chinese control the number of hires. Then there's always the physical aspect of, of blocking access. Uh, you know, we can show you that. We've seen it multiple times in many trips. You know, we can show you whether it's we traveled to Wuhan during the original outbreak. You know, security there stopping us often. You can see some of these images here. They even have told us to delete our footage. Uh, police hassling us just for doing interviews outside in, in a public space. So then there's Xinjiang, where the U.S. alleges genocide of the Uyghurs is taking place. When we go there... We're followed. We're kept from entering many places. It's also gotten personal here as the government and state media are increasingly targeting journalists by name. They share personal information about us. Uh, and in some cases, recently putting journalists' family details out there. Uh, we, we should stress, though, you know, the vast majority of folks that we encounter here, they're incredibly kind. They're, they're welcoming. But there is this increasing number of, of people buying into the fake news rhetoric, which Chinese officials and state media have adopted. So the attacks, they can be vicious, they can be personal. And Jake, with Beijing tightening its grip on Hong Kong, local journalists there, they're beginning to see similar crackdowns, even being jailed under the national security law, which went into effect in 2020. Now, David, China has this uh, zero COVID policy, which strictly enforces quarantines and, and closely tracks everyone coming into the country. I, I would suspect that they use that to, to control reporters even more. You're right. This has really accelerated their ability to kind of keep tabs on us. You know, the lockdowns and contact tracing here, they're seemingly effective in containing the virus, sure, but also uh, really effective in, in keeping us contained as journalists. 
Take Xinjiang, for example. You know, depending on the severity of the outbreak in this country, they put COVID entry requirements in place, even if you're traveling from another part within China. So they can put you in quarantine for up to 14 days. Doesn't matter how many multiple negative COVID tests you have in hand. And so that certainly dissuades many of us from traveling there. And then there's contact tracing. We, along with everyone in China now, tracked constantly through our smartphone health code apps. In Beijing, you need to have it to scan into just about every place you go, from getting into a rideshare, a taxi, to going into a restaurant. All of that in the name of health security. So it certainly makes it much easier for them to know where we are pretty much at all times. You know, the Chinese population included, but certainly, and perhaps uh, Jake most especially, as journalists. And the thing is, there is no indication that they plan to roll back any of these COVID restrictions anytime soon. In fact, it, it seems very likely that it'll continue uh, for many months, if not years to come, Jake. All right, David Culver in Beijing with the latest in our Behind China's Wall series. Thank you so much. Let us pivot to our sports lead and bring in CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan uh, inside the Olympic bubble in Beijing. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. So let's talk about the nicer side of the Olympics, or at least the competition. You've been covering the Olympics for decades. This year, it's very interesting. There are two athletes, Eileen Gu and Ju Yi, who were born in California, but they're competing for the Chinese Olympic team. Switching teams is not that unusual. It's not unheard of, but this year there is, of course, increased scrutiny and pressure on these two athletes. There's an article in the Washington Post that says, quote, the experiment to internationalize Chinese sports has not sat easily with fiercely nationalist fans in China who are watching the foreign-born athletes Closely, when everything goes well, as it has with Goo, viewers accept them with pride. But one slip-up in competition or elsewhere, and the attempt to straddle the line between nations can become perilous. Uh, How odd is this for American athletes to possibly have trained with these athletes and now have to compete against them? Jake, absolutely. I mean, politics and these Olympic Games will be the headline always. And these two athletes certainly exemplify that. In the case of the figure skater, she was almost set up to fail. I mean, it's tough to, to skate and to be the, be the representative of your country. She was for the women's competition. She fell. And, of course, she has just been getting a torrent of abuse uh, on social media here in China. Such a shame. We could have seen that coming. Uh, with Goose, it's the opposite. It's, the, it's the, the perfect ending for her. Now, she will be faced with questions the rest of her career about why she chose to link herself with China and, of course, its repressive uh, government and human rights violations that we all know about the abuses, uh, especially in the wake of the Peng Shui story. So that's her call. That's her choice. It's 1.4 billion fans here, 1.4 billion consumers, and she can market to all of them. But she's also going to have to deal with why she did this, why she chose to do this, San Francisco-based uh, American young woman, and yet she is linking not with the United States— but which is her right, but with a, a government in a country that is in the spotlight as no other country is right now. And you have some new reporting today on the figure skating team competition getting delayed because of a positive drug test on the Russian team. How often is this happening? Well, Russia, it's a Lifetime Achievement Award, Jake, for Russia in terms of doping. Um, they are, in fact, not known here as Russia, as I'm sure some viewers have noticed. It's the Russian Olympic Committee, ROC. Now, it's still Russia, and the colors are Russia. Uh, they don't get to play their national anthem, but they're being punished. They've been sent to the principal's office, and this is now the fourth Olympic Games where they are in trouble for doping. The problem is 
that the International Olympic Committee allows them to keep coming. If you told Russia, no, you could literally not come to the Olympics, they might learn their lesson. So now we have a story. I broke this story a few hours ago that that one member of the six uh, athlete Russian figure skating team competition did test positive, throwing everything in doubt, not just the team gold medal, which if Russia is knocked out and disqualified, Jake, the U.S. would then move up to that gold medal position, but also the competition coming from now on in these games, uh, the individual competition. So Russia being Russia, um, uh, but if it is, in fact, a minor has been reported by some, I have not yet reported that information, uh, then the question comes in of who is in charge of her, why, if, in fact, she was given some kind of a drug, and is she in charge of her own life and body and career? Very troubling issues that I am predicting will carry through every day of the rest of these Olympic Games. Almost as if if you don't punish in a real way people who break the rules, they'll keep breaking the rules. Christine Brennan inside the Olympic bubble in Beijing. Thanks so much. You're going to have to dip deeper into your wallet for those wings, chips and dips. Next, why your Super Bowl party this Sunday could be quite a bit more expensive. In our money lead, are you hosting a Super Bowl party? Well, you might want to consider throwing a Hail Mary and ditching the meat. Inflation is causing chicken prices to jump 12%. Ground beef for your chili up 13%. Steak? You're left to dish out a whopping 21% more, according to an analysis by Wells Fargo. Now, if you're not sweating those price hikes, you'll definitely be sweating if you're going to the game. Because the National Weather Service today issued the first ever February heat advisory. For Los Angeles, a heat advisory, the temperature for the big game, is forecast to be as high as 90 degrees, which would, of course, make it the hottest Super Bowl in history. Follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. You know, if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room, who will have all the latest on the Gazpacho Police. See you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.